welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on March 20th, Lord's Day Service. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 18. Verses 10 through 20. Matthew 18, 10 through 20. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine who did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your tenderness towards your sheep. Thank you that you have come to us, you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. May we also learn the beauty and the glory that comes when our weaker members are retrieved and restored. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the most famous questions in Scripture is, am I my brother's keeper? That question, first asked by Cain, has not gone away. The way a society answers that question will determine how long that society lasts. Those who ignore the question, those who do not take the responsibility of caring for their brothers and sisters will not remain. We, the church, bear responsibilities for our Christian brothers and sisters. When someone takes membership vows, as we did this morning, the congregation promises to, quote, commit ourselves to this family in covenant, to love them, nourish them, build them up in the faith, support them in blessings and trials, and exhort them to live godly lives before Jesus Christ. This qualifies as being our brother's keeper. 
Jesus gives direction in Matthew 18 about what love looks like. He begins with saying, at the very beginning, we did not read the first of the chapter, but he, he starts by saying that we must become like a little child to enter his kingdom. When someone comes into the covenant, we must receive that person as you would receive a child. Just like you give children a certain degree of extra patience because they're immature. You want to treat them well. You, you want them to understand that they are loved even though they don't always act lovable. He or she has certain weaknesses. And this is true for every believer in the church. There are certain weaknesses and we must be prepared to deal with those weaknesses. We must also be careful, Jesus says, not to give offense to that person. He says in Matthew 18, verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. Offenses will come, but you don't want to be the one who gives offense to one of Christ's lambs. We don't want to drive his children away. In fact, we should go out of our way to not cause stumbling blocks for others. Now, this is not saying that we must treat everyone like a tender snowflake, fearing to ever disagree, but we must avoid doing or saying anything that would cause one to stray from God. That, that's why he says what he says in verse 8, which is, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better to enter into life lame rather than having two feet or two hands and be cast into everlasting fire. Have you ever asked yourself, why is that verse there? Why does Jesus go from talking about you must be, be like a little child to come into the kingdom and then don't give offense and then if your hand offends you or your eye offends you, cut it off, pluck it out, cast it from you and then he comes back around to the little ones again in verse 10. What's this about? Jesus is not scatterbrained. There's a point. He's leading gradually through the point all the way through this teaching. It's all about caring for the little ones, caring for weak members. I don't often give a sermon title in the midst of the sermon. But I want you to think about this in this way, and that is, and this is a title, Retrieving Our Weaker Members. Retrieving Our Weaker Members. So as Jesus said, again in verse 10, we must not despise those who are weak. He said, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones because their angels see the face of my Father. You say, well, that's talking about just little kids, right? No, it's talking about all those who have come into the kingdom as little children, hearkening back to the beginning of chapter 18. Jesus came for the people who are lost. So he proceeds to tell a parable in verses 12 through 14 of a lost sheep. The shepherd leaves the others to pursue the lost one. He leaves the sheep who are together to pursue the one who's lost. Jesus is saying here that he loves these weak children. He loves those who might be prone to stray. He pursues them so that they won't utterly perish. 
And just as Jesus loves them, so too we must love them. In fact, one way the Savior manifests his love for his children is through his shepherds and the congregation pursuing those who go astray. When you and I go after one who has strayed, we're not just showing our love. We're not just demonstrating that I love or that you love this person. We are ministering the love of Christ to that person. We are the body of Christ. And as the body, we minister the work of Christ to people. You say, I've never seen Jesus with my eyes. No, he's given his body on this earth for the last 2,000 years to minister his spirit to others. Have you seen the work of Christ in other people? Have you seen people who otherwise were going one direction, who when the Lord works in their hearts, they change? Have you seen his work in your own life? We are not allowed to casually let sheep stray. We must pursue them. This pursuit is the corrective element of church discipline. It's not saying that every time someone strays that it's, it's somebody's fault, that someone has done something wrong if another person, if one of the sheep leaves. It, it does not mean that. Jesus is saying you need to be careful that that's not the case. Guard yourself from that being a case, the case. But sometimes sheep stray. And it's the responsibility of God's people to help bring them back. Correctional discipline is the act of pursuing one for the purpose of restoring them to Christ. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus teaches how this pursuit should take place. When it's discovered that the person, he or she is in sin, the one who observes this should go to that person and exhort him or her to stop. If that doesn't work, the one who first went will then bring another, one or two others, as Jesus said, and they hopefully together can exhort the person to return. But after repeated attempts to regain the lost brother, the matter must then be brought before the church. This is the final step of this process of church discipline. Sometimes we think of just the very last stage as the discipline, but that's not it. Hopefully, all of us as parents in here are in some degree or another working through discipline with our children, not just corrective discipline, but as we've heard recently, formational discipline. That's part of it as well. Well, sometimes though, when one strays, the correctional discipline is needed. Well, it's not just kids that stray. It can be adults. So we are called to, co to continue in the process. Finally, if the person will not hear, when the matter is brought to the church and the church hears the matter, the final step of this discipline 
is the person must be cast out of the church, must be treated as an unbeliever. Verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, that is, to hear the church, if he refuses to hear, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Those were not names that that's not just identifying, you know, people's job descriptions. A heathen and a tax collector is somebody who doesn't belong in the church. Someone who is dishonest, who is openly dishonest, you, you treat them like that. But even then, and I want you to hear this very well, even when someone is removed from the church, we don't say, good riddance, boy, it's good that they're gone. Now we can get on to the business of being holy together. No, even then, we're called to pray. Because if and when that person is restored, pardon my grammar, it ain't going to be you and me who restore them. It's going to be the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd. He is the one who restores, and he works through the people praying. So we are called to pray. That's why we have verse 19 and 20. When Jesus says, again, I, I say to you, if two or three of you get, agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them of my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. If Jesus was saying, after you cast them out, you're done, we would not have those last two verses. We would not have verse 19 and 20. But he is saying there is still hope. And I can say to you from my own experience in this, in being a part of church discipline cases, there have been two instances that I can tell you about where someone was actually removed from the church and after that time, as God's people prayed, the person repented and was restored. This is a work of Christ, and it's a work that he's given us the privilege of participating in. But sometimes that final step called excommunication is somewhat vague. It can mean different things to different people. So you say, what is it then? What exactly happens? Paul talks a little bit more in, uh, with more detail about this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he is dealing with a case that actually needs church discipline. So when someone is excommunicated, it means that that person is declared outside the body of Christ. They're they no longer under the covenantal protection of God. In other words, Satan now has greater access to them. Being under God's authority means you are protected, divinely protected, from the evil of the principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. You have God's divine protection. Doesn't mean nothing bad happens, as all of us can attest. Bad things happen, but we are protected to degrees of which we don't even understand or comprehend when we are under God's authority. But he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So deliver this person 
outside of the church, deliver him over to Satan. But again, he's not saying deliver them to Satan permanently so that he might be saved. The famous passage again, as we read earlier in Matthew 18, says the same thing. And when he says that this person is removed, it does not mean also that we are telling God what to do. We're not ordering the Almighty. We are simply, in our declaration of removing that person from the church, we are acknowledging what he or she has already what, what they are pursuing. We are acknowledging what God himself says about one who refuses to hear the body. We are agreeing with God. We are not telling him anything. But what's the point of this? We, we have the command, well, we, have, we have Jesus explaining how we pursue this, but why does he call us to this thing? Well, I want to say, first of all, it's not that we are administering justice. The church is not the organization given by Christ to execute justice. That is what God himself does in his time. We acknowledge what he says. We do what he says, and then the consequences that come belong to him. The church does not bear the sword. We have the keys to the kingdom. Paul gives, again, a detailed explanation of this. If you, if you want to read further, read 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. He warns here of a church member who is in sin with his father's wife, and the church wasn't doing anything about it. To paraphrase Paul's words, in this passage, Paul says, I'm not even there, and I know that this man should be turned over to Satan. In other words, what are you guys doing? Why are you letting this go? But we can't stop there. Again, I want to, I, I've said this before, and I'll, I'll say it again because I want it to sink down. The discipline is for the purpose of being restored. Okay? That is the first main goal. The, the discipline is for the purpose of being restored. But there's also a second reason for correctional discipline, and that is to protect the reputation of Christ's bride, the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7, he says, purge out the old leaven. Leaven here is a reference to the sin that's growing. If you, you know what happens if you ever put if you ever work sourdough into, you know, the, the starter into, a, uh, into some dough, what's going to happen? It's going to slowly spread. That's the leaven. So he said, you have to take that out. Because sin, if it remains, it spreads. And Paul said, this cannot happen. So purge out the old leaven. Purge out the sin. Remove this continuing sin. And look, all of us sin. Every one of us, we commit sin. There's a, I mean, if the church removed every person that sinned from her midst, this place would be empty. And I would have to lead everyone out. I'd be the first, okay? 
It's not a matter of whether or not you sin. It's do you persist in your sin? Do you openly flaunt the commands of Christ and the authority that God has placed over you? That is what draws this. And if anyone does that, they are spreading a sickness. So we cannot allow known sin to remain in the church because it mars the beauty of Christ to the world. What message does it communicate if you have a group and they say, this is what we are called to do. As disciples, we're going to walk this way. And then people say, you know, actually, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. And we say, well, that's okay, really. I mean, you know, our leader, he doesn't really care. What does that, what does that say? I mean, if in your job, if your boss says, these are your responsibilities, and you say, actually, um, I'm not going to do four of those, ever. Is your boss going to say, of course, I understand. That, that, that's great. Probably not. If it's a business worth working in. So we do this because we are commanded to, certainly, the discipline it's for the purpose of being restored. It's to protect the reputation of Christ's bride. And thirdly, discipline serves as an example and warning to others. Proverbs 19, verse 25 says, Strike the scoffer, and the simple will be made wise. We discipline also for the sake of those who are watching. The younger members of the body of Christ. Now, this is a byproduct, but it is still important. When those young in the faith see clearly enforced standards of Christian behavior, they grow in wisdom. When you were young, did you ever see one of your older siblings be disciplined for something and say, I'm not going to do that? That should be the result here as well. But again, in all of this, in all this work, which is necessary, which we cannot ignore, but in this work, there must be hope. We must maintain hope. The hope of discipline is that the lost sheep will return. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaks of a man who had sinned. So in his second letter to the church, he talks about a man who had sinned and who repented, and he calls for the congregation to comfort and forgive him. Now, we don't know what that sin was, but it's certainly possible that this man, who is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, as the one who needs to be disciplined, is also the same man who Paul exhorts them to forgive and to comfort him. God does these things beyond our ability to control. It's not that you and I can do everything perfectly, and if we take all the steps right, then everyone will be returned. It doesn't happen that way. But thankfully, even when we don't do these things perfectly, which we never fully do, the Lord is gracious, and He brings His children back because He's gracious. 
We retrieve young members. We retrieve weak members. Because this is the love of Christ working out in the life of the body. In God's economy, pursuing the straying sheep, from the first one who confronts him, those who go the second and third times, and all the prayer that goes into it, to the final excommunication, it, they are all acts of love for the sheep. And we should never fear showing love the way Jesus shows love to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us and that you have shown us your kindness. We ask that you would indeed bring back those who have strayed and use us to faithfully pursue them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Thank you.